Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to The Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Elizabeth the First. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Rack Factory, viewing all the kings and queens of England, from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. And we're on Elizabeth I. She's born 1533, the daughter of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, and she becomes queen in 1558, uh, so she's about 25 years old. So this is his second wife? This is his second wife, and she is, like Edward VI, like Mary I, the first cousin 13 times removed of Elizabeth II. Right. In terms of her appearance, um, she's sort of not very tall, maybe sort of 5'3", five, 5'4", five, something like that. It's quite a slender figure. She had sort of auburn hair, very much like yeah. Henry, but very dark eyes like Anne Boleyn. So she's definitely Striking got a little bit of the two of them. Mm. Very pale skin, an arched nose, um, which sort of became something of a beak when she got <laughs> older. Nice. And uh, apparently she was very proud of her elongated fingers. It's one of her oh, best yeah. features, so she'd always display them. Tell me about this, yeah. Um, so her childhood, um, she, if we recall, she was very disappointing to Henry VIII because she was a girl. Because she was a boy without Willie. Indeed, she'd gone through all that with Rome, breaking the, with Rome, the Reformation, got rid of his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, but Anne Boleyn only gives him a girl. Mm. Very disappointed. And then in 1536, Anne Boleyn is executed um, after alleged adultery. So Elizabeth, only two or three at this stage. So instantly she's illegitimate, her state is completely revoked. Crumbs. Big change. God, imagine when you found out. Mm. Horrible. She never mentions her mother again. Even when she becomes queen, she never refers to or mentions really? Anne Boleyn. Because mm. that would undermine her status. Um, she's very, very well educated. Probably the best educated woman of her generation. Adept at English, Latin, French, Greek. Could understand Spanish. Maybe even able to understand Cornish. What evidence do we have for that? I don't know why. I've only found sort of brief references to this. If anyone knows, please let us know. Her scholarly passion continues way after her sort of period of schooling. So even when she's an adult, she would translate classical texts just pretty much for fun. Just to sort of wind down after a hard day's work. (laughs) Hard day queening. Translate a bit of Cicero. By the time that she's a sort of young teenager, she's sort of rehabilitated. So Henry... In his later years, when he's married to Catherine Parr, his final wife, he's a bit more stable, a bit happier, brings the children to court. Now, when Henry VIII died in 1547, Elizabeth was just 14, so her younger brother, Edward VI, became king. And Elizabeth went off to live with her stepmother, Catherine Parr, who was Henry VIII's last wife. However, she was living uh, with and married to Thomas Seymour, who was the younger brother of the protector, under Edward VI, and turned out to be a bit of a bad influence. He was tall, handsome, charming and reckless. Very much the sort of prototype hot bad boy. (laughs) Which turns out to be pretty much the prototype for Elizabeth's type. Oh, right. So they have a little bit of a frisson. Do they? Elizabeth said to have blushed whenever his name was mentioned. And um, a pregnant Catherine Parr at one stage came into her room and caught them in a bit of a compromising position. Who was she pregnant with? Whose baby? With Thomas Seymour, who was her husband. Uh So they're all in the same household. Crumps. So Elizabeth gets sent away. Catherine Parr sadly died um, after giving birth. But Seymour straight away decides, right, well, opens the door for Elizabeth. 
Mm. So he decides he wants to marry her, but the council, who've already been pretty concerned because he'd been very ambitious, if we remember, he tried to sort of kidnap Edward VI at one stage. He's working his way through the Tudors then, isn't he? He's very just, much, yeah. yeah. Seymour's got ambitions above his station. The council's very suspicious about this. Put a halt to it. Seymour executed in 1549, not just for this, but for quite a strong lesson for Elizabeth early on about meddling with personal and political Yeah, and what happens? Spheres. Potentials. Edward dies in 1553, so her older sister Mary becomes queen, mm-hmm. England's first anointed queen. They have a very fraught relationship. Mary's always resented Elizabeth because Elizabeth sort of embodies the divorce for Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, who was Mary's mother. She embodies the Protestant Reformation, which, again, Mary, being an arch-Catholic, is very much against. So Elizabeth is really representative of everything that has ruined Mary's life. Classic half-sister rivalry. Yeah, so she's not very keen on her. And we recall the Wyatt's Rebellion... Um, where Thomas Wyatt, the son of a poet, launched a rebellion against Mary when she said she was going to marry Philip, who was the heir to the Spanish throne. And they didn't like the idea of her marrying, obviously a Catholic, but a Spaniard. But it was thought very much that they were hoping to replace Mary with Elizabeth. Oh, she denied all knowledge. She she? denied all knowledge, but she was very much Mm. uh, suspected of being involved and as such was brought to London and imprisoned in the Tower. Many people, um, Gardiner... Um, Renard ministers at Elizabeth's court were really pressing at Mary's Stephen court. Stephen Gardner? Yes. Yeah. I've just been re- reading with fools, so I'm getting <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Stephen Gardner, yeah. Bishop of Winchester. So her chief ministers are really pushing Mary to try and execute her. But Mary, although she didn't like Elizabeth, she wasn't going to act without evidence, and she was by nature merciful. Wyatt, on his uh, scaffold before he was executed, exonerates her publicly and says she had nothing to do with this. It was all me. She knew nothing. Good of him. So Elizabeth is removed to house arrest at Woodstock, so she is safe mm. ish. Yeah. Um, she makes a show of converting to Catholicism. Um, Mary's never convinced by this. She knows that Elizabeth is really Protestant and is just putting on a show, but she, unlike Mary in the reign of Edward, Elizabeth is willing to compromise publicly. Mm-hmm. So she's not going to die as a martyr for her faith. Uh, but she resides mainly at Hatfield, keeps out of trouble. Then in 1558, Mary I dies. Kaboom. Came over. And it's a surprisingly easy succession in terms of the fact that nobody tries to put another candidate forward. It's accepted that Elizabeth is queen. First thing she does, she appoints William Cecil to be her uh, principal secretary. And he has this position pretty much throughout the reign, very, very trusted. However, the big thing they have to deal with initially is the religious settlement of England. Yeah. Because we've had huge upheavals before Henry VIII, the initial Reformation, the dissolution of the monasteries, the break from Rome. Edward VI was a really radical Protestant Reformation he was trying to push through. Then we had Mary and the Catholic Restoration, and she's burning all those Protestants. Mm -hmm. So Elizabeth comes in, huge upheaval, huge tensions, and you've got people at either end of the spectrum wanting really... Radical responses. So a lot of the leading bishops are Catholic because we just had Mary's reign. But there are all these Calvinists, these sort of Protestant, almost sort of Puritans, who went into exile under Mary in Geneva and Zurich, and they're hoping under Elizabeth to see really radical Protestant reforms, i.e. turning things back to how it was under Edward VI. Her beliefs are a little bit harder to know. She's very enigmatic in all things. She's Protestant, but she's not as radical as Edward VI. She's much more in line with Henry VIII, so she's willing to compromise. She, as we said, she heard Mass under Mary, and she actually doesn't mind attending Mass, and she quite likes um, big ceremony, which is generally seen as Catholic, so sort of opulent churches, choral traditions in particular, which Puritans hate, very much something Elizabeth likes. So she's more tolerant. She's not a zealot. She wants a broader-based church that gets national unity, above all things, and she vows not to open windows into men's souls. What does she mean by that? Well, she means that outward conformity is enough. So she doesn't demand that everybody actually, in their heart of hearts, is Protestant. As long as they turn up, put on a show. One o'clock. That's right. Tick. Uh, But it's going to be a tricky road. 1559 Parliament, the main issue is the device for the alteration of religion. They're putting forward to say officially, this is the religion. A Protestant thing. However, it faces big opposition. The bill reinstating Protestant ideals meets heavy resistance in the Lord and was actually voted down. 
this is the first really sustained opposition that the Tudor king or queen has faced in this actually they voted against it. What happens is they have to have a new tactic. So they decide to define the debate more around arguments that they could win. So anything where the Catholics depend upon loyalty to the Pope for their legitimacy, that's what they bring up and then they can't hide behind the Pope. So they win the argument. It weakens Catholic resistance in the Lords and two important bills are passed. The Act of Uniformity, whereby you have to attend Sunday service in an Anglican church. There's a new book of common prayer and the wording is allowed to be either a subjective or object interpretation of the real presence of Christ during the communion. Transubstantiation, that's what it is. That's the word. And then the Act of Supremacy. Elizabeth is made the Supreme Governor of the Church of England. Previously, it had been the Supreme Head. Mm -hmm. But there were concerns about a woman being seen as the head of the Church of England. So they just changed the wording to make it a bit more acceptable for everybody. Yeah. Narrowly passed, but it's done. The settlement's through. England's Protestants again. Job done. Job done. The next big issue that everyone's interested in is, obviously, she has to get married. Yeah, definitely. That's what women do. It was one of the first things that... Got to have babies. She's the last of the Tudors. She's got to continue the dynasty. Mm-hmm. Now, there are various men who are potential suitors mm-hmm. and candidates for a marriage, but by far the biggest name in terms of who Elizabeth would have liked to have married, mm-hmm. it's Robert Dudley. Yes. Yeah. Very, very famous as sort of Elizabeth's beau in this period. His background, well, the Dudley name we've been doing for a number of episodes because his grandfather, Empson Dudley, had served under Henry VII as a financial minister right. and had been executed by Henry VIII right at the start of his reign. Okay. Then his father, Robert Dudley's father, who's John Dudley, the Duke of Northumberland, became the top dog under Edward VI and then had tried to get his daughter-in-law Jane Grey crowned, for which he was executed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Dudley's father and grandfather have both been executed. Mm. So the Dudley family are very much always at the centre of the Tudor world but also always coming into trouble. Close to the sun, yeah. Yes, exactly. So, Dudley had himself been imprisoned for the whole Lady Jane Grey affair. He led a force of 300 to try and capture Mary in East Anglia, for which obviously he got put in the tower. And it's possible that at this time he might have met Elizabeth, because they were imprisoned at the same time, because while he was there, Elizabeth got imprisoned because of the Wyatt Rebellion. Oh, right, so yeah, romantic yeah. legend has that they met in the same mm. position, same sort of age fell in love. It's not definite, but they've probably known each other since childhood, and she was definitely, he was definitely a favourite from very early on. Now, a lot of people of his contemporaries are very confused as to what she sees in Dudley. He's seen as something of a cad, no great intellect, unlike Elizabeth, mm. and of course his family have been disgraced over two generations, and he's always heavily in debt. What he does do is be fairly tall, Check. dark hair, Nice. Roguishly, han- roguishly handsome. That'll do it. Mischievous eyes. Yeah. Uh, very athletic, mm. impressive on horseback. Flash dresser, full of confidence, 25 years old in his prime. It's Lord Flashheart. Well, yes, very <laughs> much so. And most importantly, he's got a good sense of humour. He can make Elizabeth laugh. Mm. Elizabeth really values humour. Um, she's quite tends to melancholy at certain times. Again, a bit like Henry VIII. She can yeah. Up and yeah. down. And, and the best way uh, councillors found to get her to work through her paperwork was to entertain her with anecdotes while she worked. Because, again, like Henry VIII, she was terrible for doing paperwork. So they had to set her down, tell her funny stories, and she'd laugh away <laughs> and sign her documents. Right. And Dudley could make her laugh. So it was a stuffy Spanish bishop, uh, de la Quadra, who recollected one time in their company when he said they began joking, which she liked to do much better than talking about business. And apparently Dudley jokes that, as a bishop, he should marry them there and then which Elizabeth laughed and then questioned whether de la Quattro spoke good enough English to be able to perform the ceremony. Ah, uh, little religious political gag there. Indeed, he wasn't very impressed, but they were having much fun. However, there was a complication. Mm-hmm. Dudley was already married. Ah, oh, spanner. To a woman called Amy Robsart. So he's having all this fun and frolics with Elizabeth at court, and very much Elizabeth's preference, Amy isn't allowed to come to court, so she's kept in this country house away while... Bet she needs to stick in. Fun. Well, in 1560, she's found at the bottom of the staircase with a broken neck. <laughs> Tripped the old wife beater. Well, Tripped and fell down the stairs. He was at court at the time, so he wasn't actually there. Mm-hmm. But very suspicious circumstances. He sent away... A coroner rules that her death was accidental, but it's incredible scandal. 
mm. across the country, and Elizabeth realises that it's politically impossible to marry Dudley after this, because it will be seen that she organised the murder. Oh, so he mucked it up. Got all muck, mucked up. Yeah. He tries again various other times, still very much her favourite, but can't happen. No. Oh, what a shame. But there are various other foreign suitors who would be more mm. appropriate, perhaps, and the first of whom was Philip II of Spain. Oh, this guy. This guy. He wants to be controlling English affairs. Like he did under Mary, he wants to retain his influence. Mm. So he uh, presumed that Elizabeth would want him to relieve her of those labours which are only fit for men. Right, he's out. Statecraft. So he writes to uh, Count Ferrier, his his man in, in London, and he tells him, To confirm the Queen and her friends in the fear, you say they feel of the peril and danger in which they stand, so that they may understand thoroughly that they are ruined unless I secure and defend them. I scare them so much that they'll come running to me, mm. Big Philip, yeah. I'm going to protect them. Mm. Count Ferrier writes back, I tried to frighten her all I could. She answered amiably that she thanked your Majesty for your message. It is very troublesome to negotiate with this woman, as she is naturally changeable, and those who surround her are so blind and bestial that they do not at all understand the state of affairs. So she's pretty hard. I.e. she said no. Yeah. Yeah. There are others. Mm-hmm. Eric the Fourth of Sweden, who is mm. Protestant, yeah. sends her lavish gifts, but there's no strategic benefit to marrying the King of Sweden. No. Archduke Charles of Austria, another Catholic, but cousin of Philip, so good chance to get in with the Habsburgs and that makes international diplomacy a bit easier but never likely that she was actually going to marry him it's just sort of playing diplomatic games yeah it's just going to be the French or the Spanish isn't it Ivan the Terrible no fascinated with Elizabeth was old Ivan Uh, they had a close trading relationship um, England and Russia and he proposed marriage and potentially um, asylum should they ever need it Ivan the Terrible Ivan the Terrible sent the proposal to Elizabeth and the offered asylum. That's like being offered a nice camping holiday by Hitler. That's terrible. <laughs> she evaded giving much of a response, in, uh, to which apparently he wrote the rudest letter that Elizabeth ever received, calling her an old maid. Oh. All sorts of things. So and he that's did... where he got his name, I bet. She went, that it is did. terrible. <laughs> so he didn't take rejection too well, which oh. you might expect from yeah. Ivan the Terrible. The last one who came close was the Duke of Anjou in 1579. So England had made peace with France at this stage and there was more tension with Spain. So a, a French alliance would have been quite good. He was a small and ugly man whom she nicknamed Frog. <laughs> right. uh, but he was quite charming. And he was the only foreign suitor who actually came in person to woo Elizabeth. Hopped in person. Indeed. Yeah. He did a pretty good job. Elizabeth was actually considering it much to everyone's surprise. But... National opinion very much against it because he was a Catholic. He was a son of a very unpopular woman, Catherine de Medici, uh, mm. in France. And head ruled the heart. She didn't marry. And her last chance of having children. So she never gets married. One of the big issues is Mary, Queen of Scots. Huge. One of the biggest issues of the whole reign, mm. Mary, Queen of Scots. She has a strong claim to the English throne. Um, she'd been Queen of Scotland since 1542, when she was six days old. Right. Um, but she's descended from Margaret Tudor, who was Henry VIII's older sister. So after Elizabeth, in bloodline, she's the next best thing. Mm. Um, she marries the French king, Francis II, and they, after the death of Mary I, they court her the English and French arms, the heraldic emblems. They're very much laying claim to the English throne. Right, yeah. Which is a new thing, because usually it's England claiming to be ruling France, and we've got then Scotland, France, they've already got the old alliance, they already historically tend to ally with each other, but now it's a really strong partnership, and in particular, the mother of the French king, Mary of Guise, powerful Catholic French woman, is in Scotland as regent. So it's quite a threatening position Mm. that we've got here. However, there are Scottish Protestants um, in Scotland, and they ask Elizabeth for help. So in 1560, England sent troops kick out the French. And thanks to French religious tensions, they're not able to send out lots of troops, so English intervention is successful. Cecil goes up, at the Treaty of Edinburgh, they negotiate a peace, aided by the death of Mary of Guise, Mm. not assassination, as implied in the Elizabeth film. Um, France agreed to withdraw their troops from Scotland, recognise Elizabeth as Queen, and renounce Mary, Queen of Scots, claim to the English throne. Job done. That's brilliant. Job done in terms of France. 
right. there is still the problem of the succession because as we've mm. seen Mary, uh, Elizabeth doesn't marry she doesn't have any children what happens mm. if Elizabeth dies and in 1562 she very nearly does she falls very very ill with smallpox she's so ill that it's thought that she's basically on death's door she's going to die and council are debating who should be queen or king after Elizabeth and they can't decide they're completely split between uh, Mary or... Not between Mary. No one considers Mary. There are some of the sisters of Lady Jane Grey who are now a bit disgraced. That's so spurious. And Lady there are some even more spurious ones that are arguing over. But the problem is Mary, although not considered, still has the best claim. And in 1561, she had come back to Scotland. So she is now on site. She's just there. In the she is just there. After the French king, Francis II, dies, she thinks about marrying Mary to Dudley. Robert Dudley, her favourite, she thinks, this is great, he's my man, I can't marry him, but if he marries Mary, he'll still be loyal to me, and I'll have a bit of control, I'll be able to keep my eye on her. She's ruthless, isn't she? Dudley and Mary, not keen on the idea, which Elizabeth is a bit peeved about. Instead, Mary marries a man called Darnley, Henry Darnley. He is also descended from Margaret Tudor, but from a different marriage, so he also has a bit of a claim to the throne. So by marrying him in 1565, this gives Mary an even stronger claim mm. to the English throne. She's now married to someone of Tudor descent, and yeah. she is herself. So their children will be Tudor. Indeed. Unfortunately, he turns out to be a rather violent and unpleasant fellow. Oh. Um, Mary's secretary, an Italian man, Rizzio, was very close to her, giving her lots of advice. Darnley and other men at court didn't like him. So Darnley and his thugs come in. He restrains the pregnant Mary while somebody points a pistol at her belly so that she stays put, and Rizzio dragged out and stabbed to death. That means 56 Why, why was times. he stabbed to death? Because he was very close to Mary, seen as controlling her, the other nobles at court didn't like it. In 1567, the Earl of Bothwell, who becomes closer to Mary, arranges Darnley's murder. Mm. So Darnley himself comes a cropper. And then a few months later, Mary marries Bothwell, the man that killed Darnley. Mm. Now, remember, Elizabeth couldn't marry Dudley when his wife died, but Mary marries the man who... Definitely sorted it out. Yeah, yeah, so obviously everyone thinks that she might have something to do with it. Protestants at court have never liked her very much, and when she gives birth to a son, James, Protestants force her out, force her to abdicate, and she's kicked out, and James becomes James VI of Scotland. Right. So Mary's been forced to abdicate. Right. By Protestants. By Protestants in Scotland. And Scotland is on the whole Protestant. It is now, yeah. Mary surprises everyone in 1568 by escaping from confinement and going into exile. And rather than going to France, she comes to England. Really? Yeah, well, she was hoping that Elizabeth would give her military aid and help her get her Scottish throne back. England are rather surprised, and they don't really know what to do with her. Lock her up. Well, sending her back would mean she'd get executed. Mm-hmm. Giving her military aid would ruin all the improved relations that they had with the now Protestant French, uh, Scottish court. So, as you said, they decide to keep her under house arrest, mm. where she remains for 19 years. Right. Yeah, well, best choice, I'd say. From the 1570s, with Mary now there as a kind of Catholic figurehead in England, Catholic pressure, Catholic rebellion starts to ferment against Elizabeth. Um, in 1569, there's a rising of the North, where there's a plan to marry the Duke of Norfolk, to Mary. So again, ensure the succession, noble royal birth, etc. Mm. Not a very popular idea with Elizabeth. That doesn't go ahead, but other people who have been involved, the Earls of Westmoreland and Northumberland, decide to take military action, occupy Durham, celebrate Mass in the Cathedral, and they decide to march on York. So there's lots of Catholics up north. Mm. Right. Unfortunately um, for them, they're quite easily dispersed, and that's all put to bed. Okay. But it's a sign of things to come. In 1570, Pope Pius V excommunicates Elizabeth. For what? Well, for the whole Protestant thing. He left a bit late, did Well, again, because of Philip II, he tried to keep her in the good book, so he'd urge Catholic Europe to accept her as queen and not excommunicate her. Really? Yeah. Even though she was just Protestant, he was saying, just... Yeah. Just lay off. Oh, wow. Lay off. Wow. But by 1570... Gloves are off. Okay. So she's excommunicated, and what's more, Pope Pius legalises her deposition. 
So mm-hmm. he says, Catholics, it's all right, you're not beholden to her. There's no rule, you can assassinate her. Killer. Which makes any Catholic subject now a potential traitor. Yeah. Mm. Right. So, 1572, there's a Rodolfi plot. The Duke of Alba from Spain is going to invade from the Netherlands, foment a rebellion in the north, murder Elizabeth and marry Mary to Norfolk. Again, the plan fails, but the Duke of Norfolk, who was involved in some of the plotting, is finally executed. Although it took four months to convince Elizabeth to do so. So she was quite forgiving. She really was. Very forgiving. She was very proud of the fact that she hadn't done any political executing. Apparently I had to get a new block for the execution because it had worn out <laughs> uh, yeah. since 1558. But nevertheless, he is executed. Various others in the 1570s. But then 1583, the Throckmorton plot, discovered by Francis Walsingham, who's sort of Elizabeth's sort of spy master. The councillors say, this has gone too far, we've got to do something. So we have the bond of association where anyone who benefits from Elizabeth's assassination will be executed if Elizabeth is assassinated. However, despite everything, Elizabeth keeps on resisting calls for Mary herself to be executed. Why is she like herself? Well, from 1569, they're pushing her on this. In 1572, Elizabeth even does a U-turn where she had promised Parliament to bar her from the succession, but then she decides not to go ahead with it. Elizabeth's aware that it's an issue. So she said herself, I'm not so void of judgment as not to see mine own peril, nor yet so ignorant as not to know were it in nature a foolish course to cherish a sword to cut mine own throat, i.e. if I sanction the murder of an anointed monarch, why can't someone do that to me? It's meant to be sacred, you're not allowed to kill kings mm. and queens. If mm. she kills Mary, she's sort of putting the axe over her own neck. Well, right, with what happens. However, Babington Plot in 1586, a young Catholic nobleman hoping for a Spanish invasion to depose Elizabeth, Mary, thanks to a sting operation by Walsingham, is directly implicated in her correspondence. So she is seen as being involved in a plot to kill Elizabeth. They've got the evidence. The smoking gun. Elizabeth finally signs a death warrant in 1587. The Secretary Davison rushes straight off takes it to Cecil, and Mary's executed a few days later at Fotheringay Castle. Mary's execution proves quite a big moment in another big theme of the reign, which is the European stage, European conflict. Mm. As a bit of background, as you said, with France, we had religious tension between the Catholics and the Protestants, or as they were known, Huguenots, mm. in France. 1572, there's the St Bartholomew's Day Massacre, where around three or 4,000 Huguenots are killed in Paris and about 10,000 more across the whole of France, all on one day, this just massacre all across the country. The only survivors of the leaders, Henry Navarre and the Prince de Conde, narrowly escape, but it causes outrage in England, Mm. particularly Walsingham, who had that time had been ambassador in Paris, that he comes back to England. They all think, we've really got to act in Europe now, we can't just stand by, we've got to direct military aid for Protestant countries. Mm. Netherlands is the main focal point. It's been under Spanish rule, and we've got what was called then the 17 provinces. There's dissatisfaction amongst Protestants and Catholics with their colonial status. And in 1572, William of Orange comes along. Not the William of Orange, who will later become King of England, but an ancestor of his. He captures various towns, leads a revolt against Spain, and Walsingham and Dudley press Elizabeth to intervene. But she holds back, she's reluctant. However, in the 1580s, things escalate somewhat. In 1584, William of Orange is assassinated. So in 1585, Elizabeth signs a treaty of non-such, where she rejects Dutch sovereignty, which they offer to her. She doesn't want to become queen of Mm. the Netherlands, but she agrees to an alliance and promises troops. So, gosh, the Dutch got away with rather a good deal. Spain, not too fond of this. And tensions have been building... Um, England was seeking, of course, to offset Spanish dominance in Europe, but Philip took Nonsuch as an act of war, and Mary, Queen of Scots' execution, as a Catholic princess, of Mm. course, was the final straw. 1587, Elizabeth had been sponsoring um, adventurers, or pirates, pirates, as it were, um, when they took action against Spanish fleets. She got some of the booty. In particular, of course, was... Sir Francis Drake, Mm. very famous, led successful raids in the Caribbean, and in particular, an assault on Cadiz in 1587, when a Spanish armada was being planned. But such was the damage that he did, they had to put it back for a whole year. He gives England time to prepare, Walsingham knows all about it because of his spy networks, but in 1588 we have the Spanish armada. Mm. Plan is, 
fleet of about 150 ships and 15,000 men will sail from Lisbon to Gravelines, which is Flanders, mm. where they will rendezvous with the Duke of Parma, who has 30,000 troops. And thus they will go over, land in England, ferment rebellion, kill Elizabeth. We Watertight plan. Watertight. Unfortunately, it doesn't go very well for Spain. They're delayed by bad weather. Harried, once they get to English, sort of waters the channel by Drake. He's sort of nitpicking at them. Lots mm. of little conflicts going on. Palmer's army is reduced by disease. They fail to link up. And the Armada, broken down, ships damaged, low on supplies, couldn't continue, forced to go home. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they've tried to go home via Ireland and Scotland, which are sort of more friendly waters. But really bad weather and a loss of anchors leads to lots of shipwrecks, about 17 or 24 on the Irish coast, only 67 ships and 10,000 Spaniards actually made it home in the end. Do you want a little fact on about um, the Armada? Hit me. Um, Lisbeth yeah. kept the sailors at sea and on their ships when they got back. Mm. No heroes welcome or anything, so she didn't have to pay them. Those of them just died of disease. Clever. Mm. Good for subjectivity. <laughs> yeah. So, Spanish Armada very successful, but if we enter her later years, things are looking a little less jolly. The old generation are starting to die off. Of her advisors. Of her advisors. Right. Who've been there, you know, throughout the reign pretty much. So old servants like Sir Francis Walsingham dies in fifteen ninety, Drake in fifteen ninety six. Shortly after the Spanish Armada in fifteen eighty eight, Robert Dudley dies. Oh no, heartbroken. A great love indeed. Apparently and when Elizabeth found out she locked herself in her room, refused to see anyone for a few days, and then after her death um, a letter that he'd written her the night before he died was found um, in her drawer, marked with her handwriting his last letter, and put it in a special drawer, Aww. which he kept until she died. That's very sweet. It's very sad. And then 1598, William Cecil, Lord Burley, her trusted advisor from day one, mm. he finally dies after 40 years. That's a, a main wow. man. Yeah. Um, apparently Elizabeth um, hadn't let him retire, even when he got really, really old, because she valued him so much. And when he was dying, spoon-fed him with cordial in his deathbed. So she came Keep working, keep working. Oh, I'll get that urge to sign this. Uh, but she was said to have taken his death very grievously, shedding of tears and separating herself from all company. So lots of her old friends, her old trusted people, mm. all started to die. And she herself, of course, is getting older. Her French ambassador, André Hurot, uh, noted, As for her face, it is and appears to be very aged, it is long and thin, and her teeth are very yellow and unequal compared with what they were formerly, and on the left side less than on the right. Many of them are missing, so that one cannot understand her easily when she speaks quickly. The problem was Elizabeth... She sounds terrible. Well, yeah. The sad thing, Elizabeth being really big on hygiene, she had lots of little baths, she had toothpicks, yeah. very special things, but she had a sweet tooth. Right. Sugars and all sorts of things, so her teeth very badly decayed mm. and were falling out. Okay. She also, from the smallpox, she'd lost a lot of her hair and she suffered scarring, so she had lots of big wigs, really heavy makeup, which, because of the lead content, didn't do her very yeah. much good. So she's not it a pretty picture. quite a lot like a witch. A little bit, yes, and of course her long nose yeah. at this stage. Yeah. Uh, but as her looks fade, the flattery increases. So there's sort of real charade, and of the portraits, she never gets old, of course. She yeah. always looks sort of 25 and beautiful. But as Walter Raleigh rather uh, cruelly quipped, she was a lady whom time had surprised. She had, however, a new favourite, a new young man that she looked to and enjoyed the flattery of, namely the Earl of Essex, who was the stepson of Dudley. Right. And he brought him to court, sort of almost to you know, keep his mm. presence up. She was his, he was her new man. He was showy, handsome, again, hungry for glory, a bit dangerous, a bit cocky, the kind of guy that she likes, and he had a strong rivalry with, rivalry with the son of William Cecil, who was Robert Cecil. Right. So you have this sort of new generation, Dudley yeah. and Cecil had always been rivals, and now they're yeah. sons. Beverly Hills 90210. Exactly, the new generation. The unfortunate thing for Essex was that despite his hunt for glory, he was always in debt, like his father-in-law, and quite incompetent. In Ireland in 1599, when rebellion broke out, he was sent over with a large army to suppress it. His campaign was a complete disaster. He made a truce without ever coming to battle, having lost lots and lots of his men through disease and various other things. And his replacement managed to achieve complete victory with far fewer troops. Right. So he was a bit Not rubbish. 
1601, he has his final downfall. He was in house arrest because of his disgrace of disobeying Elizabeth's orders in Ireland. He wasn't very happy about it, so he marched on London, marched into London to raise popular support and force a meeting with Elizabeth, or maybe even take the throne. Yeah, that's a hell of a way to get a meeting. Uh, unfortunately, nobody pays much attention, doesn't get any popular support, gets arrested and executed. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. But Elizabeth's very sad that, you know, another one of her favourites is gone and it didn't work out very well. And she she herself falls into melancholy. Mm. Particularly after the death of her long friend, uh, long-lived friend, Countess of Nottingham, she falls into depression. She's outlived all of her friends and favourites and she herself is old. Venetian ambassador noted that she has suddenly withdrawn into herself. She who was wont to live so gaily, especially in these last years of her life. And she herself has said, I am not sick, I feel no pain, and yet I pine away. Mm. So 1602, end of the year, she was starting to feel unwell and melancholy, suffering possibly sort of from bronchitis, maybe pneumonia, lots of little things that were sort of building up. 1603, early in the year, she's getting worse and worse, refuses to go to bed or see any doctors. So she just sat up in days, propped up on cushions, finger in her mouth, just sighing heavily all day. Without any hair, with odd teeth. With a wig and yeah. The Earl of Nottingham at one stage came along, begged her to go to bed. Uh, but she said, if you were in the habit of seeing such things in your bed as I do when in mine, you would not persuade me to go there. I had a premonition that if I once lie down, I will never rise. The 24th of March, 1603, she finally dies, just under 70 years old. God, that's good age, isn't it? Very good age for the period. But she is dead. The Tudor dynasty is over. She's had a reign, a very long reign, but yeah, well we done. must now review her. How well does she stack up? Battleliness! Pretty good. Well, there's some good stuff in here. Um, right at the start of the reign in 1560, we had that, um, that intervention in Scotland. Yeah, flawless. Which was really, really good. Um, a successful military intervention, got rid of the French Catholic forces, made Scotland Protestant and friendly... It's all very good. Treaty mm. of Edinburgh, great success. William Cecil, very pleased with himself. Yeah, should be. Job done. At least two, three points there. Hmm. Then we have Ireland. She didn't cover too much in the biography, but Ireland really becomes a big part of the English story at this period. Ireland never really embraced the Reformation in the way that England and Wales had, and English authority was limited to what was known as the Pale, which is sort of the surrounding area of Dublin. They never really got their teeth. But they Ireland. technically ruled the But they are lot. technically ruling it. Um, so, but Irish Catholicism started to become associated with a growing sense of nationalism. So right. they're facing growing rebellions. Spain was also interested in Ireland because it's a useful stepping stone mm. into England. So there was a rebellion in Munster in 1579, encouraged by Spanish mercenaries. In the 1580s and 90s, Irish rebel- rebels always looking to Philip for mm. Spanish assistance. Hugh O'Neill is the big chap in this rebellion, um, a powerful clan that he ruled, dominated Ulster, and we have the Nine Years' War from 1594 to 1603. So he leads a rebellion against England in Ireland. Nine Years' War? I thought they had the Spanish involved. Or did they have the Spanish involved? Uh, they did at one stage, yes. So um, he is able to feed and arm about 8,000 soldiers, which is pretty big yeah, yeah. for that period in Ireland, plus he's got Spanish links. So 1594, open rebellion. So Lord Mountjoy, after the disaster in 1599 under Essex, Mountjoy goes in, fewer troops in Essex, but does a much better job. Penetrates uh, Ulster by its interior, so he has a sea landing at Derry in Carrickfergus. At the siege of Kinsale in 1601, south of Cork, 4,000 Spanish troops landed the Kinsale to back up the Irish rebels. So Mountjoy rushes in, besieges the fort, and then 1602, the Irish gamble on coming out into open conflict, but the English cavalry rout the Irish, Spanish surrender. So in 1603, Mountjoy um, signs the Treaty of Mellifont with um, Hugh O'Neill. Quite generous terms. Mm. Um, So Hugh O'Neill isn't executed or anything like that. But... The reason that it's so generous, partly because it's been a costly war, but also because technically Elizabeth actually dies before they sign the treaty. Oh, really? So which would invalidate Mountjoy's commission to see yeah. it through. So what he does is he just doesn't tell them. <laughs> so they sign the deal, accept the peace terms, and then it's like, oh, by the way, Elizabeth died. Oh, 
So Yoan Neal apparently was said to have wept when he heard the news, but that might just have been because he realised that he'd been screwed by yeah. <laughs> signing the peace treaty in the surrender to a dead queen. Yeah. But victory in Ireland. The big thing, of course, is the Spanish Armada. Mm. Yeah, a lot of English success here. We'd had the piracy, which um, Elizabeth had sponsored, so and that's improving the navy, investing in it more, and particularly Francis Drake destroyed two to three dozen Spanish ships at Cadiz, captured Portuguese uh, East Indiamen, which is apparently a ship worth £140,000, and he was said to have singed the King of Spain's beard oh, yeah. at his attack. Yeah. The Armada itself, of course, <clears throat> 55,000 troops in all. If they had landed, they probably would have been successful. Yeah, that's hell of a number. Because they're much more superior forces. But Walsingham spy work, uh, networks meant England was well prepared. The bad weather helped, of course, but Drake always, Drake always harrying... Yeah, the and they, had, um, they used fire ships, didn't they? In the night, they'd to scatter them. And yeah, so when the Spanish got to Calais and they were trying to link up with Palmer, he sent in the fire ships, so it broke the formations. Really clever. something about their guns. Fire ships, of course, literally ships that they set alight. Yeah. So there eight of them that they sent in. Good tactic, though, worth it. Yeah, so it didn't destroy any ships, but it just meant they all had to move. Obviously. Yeah, and then get lost the next day. Mm. So, And there was something about their guns. <laughs> they had... Uh, longer range guns. The English, yeah. yeah. And so the Spanish guns, well, I think, weren't as well fitting, didn't reload as well, something. They weren't quite as. It was genius, anyway, The whole thing's brilliant. And then the Battle of Gravelines, after the formation has been broken, it was an attritional conflict. Drake ran out of ammo after eight hours. With the Gravelines, which is that one? Um, so this is after they've had the fire ships. Right. They then have a naval battle. Oh, Only been. five Spanish ships destroyed, but many are badly damaged. They're low on supplies. They've been harried for. Mm weeks and weeks, that's when they had they have to give up. Mm. And of course, Elizabeth's role in this, she goes to inspect her troops under Dudley's leadership, because he was in control of the army, who are based at Tilbury in case there was an invasion. Mm. And she inspects the troops wearing a silver breastplate over the white velvet dress and launches very famous speech, um, which, amongst other things, she says, I am come amongst you, as you see at this time, not for my recreation and disport, but being resolved, in the midst and heat of the battle, to live and die amongst you all, to lay down for my God and for my kingdom and my people, my honour and my blood, even in the dust. I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and of a king of England too. Yes, rousing stuff. And Tilbury's an impressive place. Indeed, Tilbury Fort, yeah. still there. And of course, England survives. Pope Sixtus V uh, commented, She is only a woman, only mistress of half an island, and yet she makes herself feared by Spain, by France, by the Empire, by all. Yeah, I think this is big. It's definitely better than Henry. Henry is rubbish. But oh. it's not all plain sailing. Okay. 1562, there's an attempt to recapture Calais, which Mary had lost. So, the Treaty of Hampton Court, England agreed to provide men and money to the French Huguenots in return for the secession of Dieppe and Le Havre, which will be returned once Calais is restored. Mm. So, this big enterprise, they're going to try and get it back, but the Huguenots and Catholics make a truce. Le Havre surrenders in 1563 back to the French. Uh, it's a total failure. They don't mm. go back to Calais. Elizabeth is incredibly indecisive drives her ministers absolutely mad. She never makes decisions, always hoping things will resolve themselves. And it causes problems in her military campaigns. In Scotland, she really was reluctant to send any troops in 1560. Cecil even threatened to resign if she didn't. That's how far he pushed them. Initially, the army she sent was too small. The scaling ladders that they had to go over the walls, um, at least, were too short. That would be priceless. The siege was easily defeated, <laughs> resulting in 1,500 casualties. How did they find that out? Do you reckon they looked at them when these aren't big enough or went up there and got to the walls? Oh, crumbs. Um... <laughs> <laughs> so they then had to send more troops in. So it wasn't a complete success in Scotland. It was yeah. only after they sent more. Of course, the big issue in Europe mainland was the Netherlands, where William of Orange was leading the Protestant rebellion. But despite the pressure from Dudley and Walsingham, Elizabeth kept resisting sending troops and getting herself more involved. When she did send troops, it was never enough to make a real difference. So she never gives support to her generals to actually do anything mm. of substance. So she, you know, she's not going as far as she could. Her policy is defensive. She doesn't want to expand. 
which is surrounded by very big, powerful players, though. I think she does well to survive. Ireland, it's, you know, although ultimately it's successful, there have been a lot of defeats before they got there. So 1595, Battle of uh, Clontrabay, Irish victory led by Hugh O'Neill. 1598, Battle of the Yellow Ford. English forces were marching from Armagh, but, uh, Armagh, but were ambushed. 900 killed, 900 deserted, and the plantation in Munster um, was destroyed. And, of yeah. course, Essex, in 1599, yeah. came over with 17,000 troops, <laughs> but made such a hash of it that he never even managed to fight a battle. That's impressive. So there's a lot of rubbishness going on in the English campaign in Ireland. And we can also put a little bit of an asterisk next to the Spanish Armada. Don't ruin this for me. I'm going to ruin this a little oh, bit. Boy. Let's be honest, England were very lucky. The main reason that the Spanish were defeated was probably the weather. Mm. As Philip himself said, I sent the Armada against men, not God's winds and waves. And indeed the English verdict was that God breathed and they were scattered. So the recognition that it's the weather that played the crucial role in stopping the Spanish getting there. And also, Spanish tactics undid them a little bit. On the 19th of July, the first point at which the Spanish fleet comes near the English coast, the English fleet were trapped by an incoming tide in Plymouth Harbour. And the Spanish are thinking, you know, we could just go in there, wreck the fleet, and then we've got control of the sea. But Philip's orders beforehand had been, don't go in attacking England, don't deviate, you go to Duke of Parma, get the troops, and then you invade. So they had a great opportunity to completely take out the English naval defences. But they didn't go ahead with it. And ultimately, it was inconclusive. The war carried on. England launched assaults. Spain launched assaults. It didn't mm. actually resolve the war. So it went on beyond both of them. Philip died in 1598, uh, a very sad end. He had 52 agonising days of severe gout and dropsy and all sorts of things. But he was so much pain, he literally couldn't move. So they had to cut a, uh, a hole in his bed so that he could relieve himself. Oh, dear. Horrible end for wow. Philip. And it goes on beyond Elizabeth as well, so it doesn't actually resolve anything. So we've got a lot of good stuff about Linus, a lot of uh, great successes, but, you know, there's also limitations. I'm not hearing it. I, the <laughs> Scottish stuff, yeah. in every war, in every war, there's, you know, good points and bad points. The Irish yeah. ultimately sent the right fellow over. Got it done. And the Armada, it was the weather, but, you know, that's that's... <laughs> That's war, that's that is war, you know, that's what happens. So there were, there are ultimately victories. Mm. And Elizabeth, all of these great victories, is actually just to not be kicked off the throne, essentially. And none of this is actually really dominating another country, it's just surviving. But it is surviving against incredible odds. I've got to give it above five, because she's got the Spanish Armada there. Mm. And I love a good naval battle. You do love a good naval battle. <laughs> um, so I'm going at least seven. Because it's the Spanish Armada, it's iconic. Yeah. It she survives against all the odds. All the odds. And it's these big power bases that she's dealing well with, doesn't get invaded, doesn't get kicked out, still sends troops off, big success in Ireland, Spanish Armada, Kaboom. Score. Seven. Uh, I'm gonna give it a six. Okay. It's it is more positive than it is negative, obviously, but we shouldn't go overboard. It's not She's not out there with a sword conquering mm, all yeah. of Sandra. She's surviving. Yeah, okay. Scandal. There's some juicy stuff here. Mm-hmm. We recall Thomas Seymour mm-hmm. when she was a young girl. This is an account from Cat Ashley, who was sort of the main woman of her household. After he was married to the Queen, Thomas Seymour, uh, he would come up many mornings into the said Lady Elizabeth's chamber before she were ready, and sometimes before she did rise. And if she were up, he would bid her good morrow, and ask how she did, and strike her upon the back or the buttocks familiarly. And so go forth through his lodgings. And if she were in her bed, he would put open the curtains and bid her good morrow, and make as though he would come at her, and she would go further into the bed, so that he could not come at her. Crikey. So we have him going into a bed, striking her buttocks familiarly. Mm. I'm sure how you strike them in a yeah. more formal and uh, yeah, and then protocol sense, but her wriggling away, mm. as in from him. Yes, not just on the bed. Mm. Yeah, that's not good. Robert Dudley, lots of scandal there. The Spanish reports said that he's come up some so much into favour that he does whatever he likes with affairs, and it is even said that Her Majesty visits him in his chamber day and night. 
to no effect, though. Lots of rumours about, some some rumours about, not true, but some rumours that she secretly had a child by Dudley and had sent it away. And apparently English ambassadors abroad got really embarrassed by lots of lewd jokes about the relationship she had with Dudley. Mm. So it is, you know, it's causing it. Is kind of, kind of Although apparently in 1562, when Elizabeth first came round after the smallpox, um, de Quadra said that the Queen protested at that time that although she loved and had always loved Lord Robert dearly, as God was her witness, nothing improper had ever passed between them. Mm. Whether or not that's a Bill Clinton sort of, <laughs> yeah. you know... I did not have sexual relations. With that man. <laughs> but, of course, the big scandal with Dudley was his wife, Amy Robsart. Yeah, big one. Found dead at the bottom of the stairs with a broken neck. It was suspicious. Partly because it seemed to be so perfect for Elizabeth to be able to marry Dudley... Also because it was a very small staircase and it was thought unlikely that such a small fall would have resulted in her breaking her neck. Was it two steps just about floor? <laughs> it was a small sort of catch in the floor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the coroner, as he said, said the injury is compatible with a fall. Subsequent medical opinion suggests because she was known to be suffering from breast cancer at the time, a side effect can be brittle bones. So it might have been that her bones were right. more vulnerable. Mm. Um, to breaking than would otherwise be the case, but this was not known at the time, mm. of course. So, you know, there was a lot of scandal at the time, people suggesting that she'd arranged for Amy Robsart to be murdered. Whether or not it's true, of course. Yeah, that is pretty scandalous. I thought it was done so that, uh, that, so that she could then marry Dudley. It didn't work out, because then he was a murderer. That meant she couldn't marry him. Yeah. yeah. But still, there's a lot of scandal flying around there. Mm. And also, of course, the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots. Had she's, to be done. It had to be done, but she's her cousin. She's a fellow monarch, set a dangerous precedent, as, of course, she England would see a few mm. generations later. Inflames the Catholic nations. It's one of the last steps towards getting to uh, the Spanish Ooh, yeah, Armada. Spanish, yeah. And Elizabeth herself had prevaricated ever since 1568. She didn't want to execute Mary. Mm. And when she finally signed the death warrant, she kind of changed her mind afterwards and said, oh, that was only in reserve in case there was another plot to mm. kill me. I definitely didn't agree with this. How dare you? But as she said, you know, her hand was forced, and this is 19 years later, mm. and she's done all she can to not execute her. But she does. So we've got Thomas Seymour, Robert Dudley, Amy Robsart, Mary Queen of Scots. We've got a few interesting There's things on there. There's some scandal there. Hmm. It's not six wives and beheading your spouse and... No, no, and it's mainly done to her. It's not her being scandalous. Yes. Mm. What are we going to go for? I think that there's a lot of... Um, she's a virgin queen. I think she she's trying to portray herself in Wives Than White. Um, and Very much, yeah, self-cultivated uh, yeah. imagery and propaganda. And... So any, any little blemish is going to show up <laughs> and probably be exaggerated. Mm. And a lot of it's done to her. I... I can't see how she gains from... Uh, well, she doesn't gain from his wife being killed. Uh, this Queen of Scots. I think that's the one that sticks. Mm. But she was forced to do it, too. Uh, I'm going to go... What am I going to go for? I'm going to go for three and a half. It's right. sort of like just slightly less than four, because it's like you say, it's all whether or not you can really blame her for any of these no. things. I mean, there's... So yeah. it sort of causes scandal, but... Yeah, it's not quite juicy enough, is not it? Not quite juicy enough. So that's... What did you say, two? Two, you? yeah. So that's five and a half for scandal. Subjectivity. Well, we've got plenty of good things. Mm. This is the Elizabethan age. Yeah. Cultural oh. renaissance. We've got theatre, of course. Puritans saw theatre as being sinful, wanted away with it, but Elizabeth supported it, set up her own company, the Queen's Men. Oh, right. And um, this, of course, is the age of William Shakespeare, of Christopher Marlowe, two great, obviously with Shakespeare, two of the great um, playwrights of all time mm. in the mm. English language. Indeed, The Merry Wives of Windsor was written specifically because Elizabeth wanted another play involving the character Falstaff. Really? Mm. Blimey. So, oh. she, you know, she's she involved, she watches it, she likes it. Yeah. Okay. So she's championing this. Definitely. Promoting it all. Music, she has a great love there, some... Very prominent composers at this time, William Byrd, John Dowland, who uh, Sting did an album of covers of his lute oh, yeah, yeah, collection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thomas Campion, Thomas Tallis, who's still around, first came around Henry VIII. And Elizabeth's love of choral music very much enshrines that as an English tradition and an Anglican choral tradition, very much thanks to Elizabeth. Age of poets and writers like Edmund Spencer and Sir Philip Sidney, and of course the great Elizabethan mansions of this period, Hardwick Hall, Burley House, for example... 
Dudley and Cecil have this great rivalry at court, which is even extended into their houses and their gardens. Kenilworth Castle? Dudley has Kenilworth Castle, where he has huge entertainments yeah. put on for her builds new mansions and gardens, which have recently been restored. My favourite English castle. Indeed. This is also the age of exploration for the first time. So we have Sir Francis Drake, as well as singeing the beard of the King of Spain. In 1577-80, to 80, he circumnavigates the world in the Golden Hind. Yeah, I mean, this is the first time we've mentioned the Caribbean or anywhere that isn't Europe. Definitely. John Hawkins, in 1565, came back in England, having been to West Africa, the Spanish Main, which is sort of northern South America, and also Florida, where he brought back sweet potato and tobacco. Who did? John Hawkins, often attributed Not to really, Raleigh, yeah. Raleigh, but it's actually Hawkins. Mm. And, of course, we have Sir Walter Raleigh as well, who becomes a favourite Elizabeth yeah. in the 1580s. He was granted a charter for colonisation, the first colony yeah. in England, and he founded Virginia, named yes. in tribute yeah. to Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen. Yeah. And in 1600, a very big step in the future for English Empire, Elizabeth gave a charter to the East India Company. Yeah, it's all kicking off in this Born period. Born at this period. So England's empire is about, it's just setting the foundation mm. stones. Mm. For good or ill, this is a period, generally, of stability. There's all the pressures going on, but Elizabeth is queen for a long time. And unlike Henry VIII, she isn't chopping and changing with all her ministers. It's the same people throughout. Her motto is Semper Eadem, always the same. So after the turbulent half-century before, things are a mm. bit more easy. And she is generally merciful. As we said, she was very reluctant to execute Mary, Queen of Scots. It wasn't until 19 years of pressure that she finally caved in. Yeah. And also the Duke of Norfolk, of course, 1772, he was the first high-profile execution, state execution of the period. Yeah. And him and Mary are really the only big two, really. Big old school ones, yeah. And that's 14 years into a reign when Norfolk mm. gets the chop. And of course, religious settlement very well. We had the big challenge of the Catholics, the Calvinists, both extremes fighting at her, but she finds a solution which is more tolerant, outward conformity, less idealistic mm. um, in terms of what it's demanding of people and makes it as easy as possible for Catholics to conform. So we don't see the sort of suite of burnings that Mary had put forward in quite the same way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. She's... I think this is looking really, really good. And she's got the popular touch. Um, an eyewitness at her accession, Sir John Hayward, described what is basically a royal walkabout. So he said that if any person ever had either the gift or the style to win the hearts of the people, it was this Queen. All her faculties were in motion, and every motion seemed a well-guided action. Some she pitied, some she commended, some she thanked, and others she pleasantly and wittily jested, condemning no person, neglecting no office, and distributing her smiles, looks and graces so artfully that thereupon the people again redoubled the testimony of their joys. Nice bit of propaganda, but still. She's good at it. She's good at it, yeah. And 1601, right at the end of her reign, when there was some agitation in Parliament about sort of economic pressures and price fixing, she delivered what was become known as the Golden Speech. So there will never... Um, a queen sit in my seat with more zeal to my country and though you have had and may have many princes more mighty and wise sitting in this seat yet you never had or shall have any that will be more careful and loving but right always a downside yeah. this we have to avoid the myth of elizabeth there's good and bad and 1590s england really come under a lot of pressure the anglo-spanish war resulted in really high taxes french and netherlands military intervention is also very costly the Ireland and the Nine Years' War, mm. very costly. Poor harvest, epidemic disease, inflation. Uh, Bishop Goodman said later that the people were very generally weary of an old woman's government. So by the end of the reign, people are pretty fed up. Despite her tolerance, we do ultimately see repressive measures against Catholics. Most surprising, the rebellion to the North in 1569, Elizabeth arbitrarily decided that 700 people who were involved would be executed. Crumbs, Probably around 500 killed in all, and there are 200 just within Durham. But this was one of the least threatening sort of rebellions against the Tudors, but more bloody than the Pilgrimage of Grace under Henry VIII and Wyatt's Rebellion under Mary in terms of the royal response. And there were increasing repression against Catholicism, increasingly heavy fines for recusants, who were people who refused to attend Church of England services. And all in all, there were actually about 183 Catholics executed in Elizabeth's reign. Mm. Many more were very... Badly tortured. Indeed, there's a lot of torture that goes on in this period under Francis Walsingham. Ireland also suffers terribly in this period. Um, the Desmond Rebellion, 1580s, apparently garrison was massacred, earth was scorched, 
around 30,000 people ultimately probably starved to death as a result of the measures that were taken against them. So Edmund Spencer, who was there at the time, a poet, said that the victims were brought to such wretchedness as that any stony heart would have rued the same. In such short space there were none almost left, and a most populous and plentiful country suddenly was left void of man or beast. Crumbs. And then later on, when Mountjoy solves everything, he also devastates the countryside to provoke a famine. The conquest was at huge cost for England. Far more troops sent to Ireland than ever went to the Netherlands. And it probably cost around £2 million. Pounds. For not much gain, because they didn't really... For not a lot of gain. Ultimately, Ireland was under control, but both the Gaelic and Old English communities are seriously alienated from England. So although they've conquered Ireland, it's really created this sort of poisonous relationship that sets the tone for later years. So it's a really damaging legacy in Ireland mm. that is left, mm. ultimately. And, of course, we have the succession. Elizabeth, as we said, never married, despite the fact that there were parliamentary petitions in 1559, 1563, 1566, 1576. They were desperate for her to marry and have an heir, but she doesn't do it. And although we know, oh, it all works out all right in the end, they didn't know that at the time. No, yeah, that is a bad one. And, as we saw, when she had the smallpox disaster, the council so divided over who should succeed, and when she did come round, she said that she wanted Dudley to be named as Lord Protector in the event of her death. Until what? Just Well, until they sort of sorted something out. So we're going to have a Dudley again, all pretty much ruling the country. The council split on who should be in charge. Mary Queen of Scots ready to come over. If she died in 1562, there would probably have been civil war. Mm. And it was her fault. I don't think you can score above five if you don't have a stable succession like that. Mm. Okay, four and a half. Well, that's pretty low. Mm. For all that Shakespeare, the... Oh, stability. Well, I mean, I mean, I'm only saying a low because of this poor succession. Um, but, I mean, that's really, I suppose, if you're that's hanging, you'd appreciate the stability at the time, but if that's hanging over your head, five for the good stuff, but I'm not, I can't go higher than five because of the succession. That's a strong line to take. Uh, I'm going to go six. Because mm. I think although the succession is bad, ultimately it does work out, and there's a lot of positives in there. Yeah, there's, there's good positives. Anyway, that is 11 for subjectivity. Hmm. Longevity. She rules from 1558 to 1603, which is 44.33 years. Big. I'll type that in, and our calculator gives us a score there of 13.95. Dynasty, not the programme. That's a big, fat zero, I'm afraid. But the Tudor dynasty ends because Elizabeth yeah, doesn't have any children. This is it. Tudors are gone. Mm. That's a total score of 43.45, which is pretty good. Not one of the highest, though. No, I'm surprised. But it's pretty good. But we now have the final question, the final test for Elizabeth. Does she have that sense of greatness, that lasting legacy, that great achievement, the star quality, which we call... Rex Factor! Well, in her favour, of course, we've got Spanish Armada, Tilbury, the Virgin Queen, the Long Reigns, the Survival. Mm -hmm. She's the first really successful queen, and she's very much the blueprint, even now, that dominates the imagination. She's there. She's Mm. all-powerful, and she's female. On the other hand, England's vulnerable throughout, precarious position, particularly the succession. But she kept it. And Mary, Queen of Scots, Spanish Invasion, Mm. of course, lucky with the Spanish Armada. There's no real military glory. Mm. in this period it's just survival indecisive ultimately repressive measures the 1590s no air things going downhill the end of the Tudor dynasty we can't just rubber stamp the fact that there is a mythology around this but she has to deserve she has to deserve so we have to look as closely at these um, negatives to this Rex Factor Mm. and although there's luck involved and although there's it's just survival it is survival again huge odds all the while being Elizabeth which in itself is a full-time job, bringing that kind of image all the time. Apparently it took her two hours a day to get ready, and then to take it all off again. It must, it must have been so impressive to see her at court, just like her dad. Mm. But to have that sort of respect and reverence for a woman, I mean, not towards the end when she was sitting sucking her thumb, but... Yes. <laughs> I mean, like, 1560s. <laughs> if you came in 1603 on her deathbed, go, oh, to be honest, I'm pretty disappointed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've heard better. <laughs> yeah. So um, your final... I'm, I'm there. I'm definitely. I'm there as well. She's. There are negatives that you can't be mm. too carried away with the mythology, but she definitely deserves it. Elizabeth, 
you've got the Rex Factor. Mm. Well done, you've joined Henry VIII and many, many others mm. in that, um, that mountain of Rex Factor mm. we refer to. She's got it. Excellent. So that is it. Elizabeth has got the Rex Factor and we are done with the Tudors. Please keep listening. Just find that. Next time we'll be doing James I, the Stuart dynasty, and there's lots to look forward to, the gunpowder plot, the civil war, the restoration, all sorts of things. So stick with us, but goodbye from me. Goodbye. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.